Hey, it's Ben here. And in addition to this podcast, I also teach Microsoft Excel online. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access to the course. Stay tuned after the episode for a little bit more information as to why it's so important to improve your Excel skills and unlock your inner Excel ninja. Thanks. Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, friends of failure. This is uh, failure guy, Ben Currier, and I'm here today with Terry Tucker. Hey there, Terry. How's it going? I'm good, Ben. How are you doing? I am unbelievable in the sense that it was would not be believed, most likely. Uh, all the crazy stuff that's been going on lately. But thankfully, I get to focus on you uh, for the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour. I like to start the show off with a little bit of a um, humble brag or something where you can, you know, uh, let your feathers out a little bit and, and explain some of the good things that you've done before we get into some of the harder times. Sure. So um, I was born and raised in Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You you can't tell this, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and uh, played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina uh, on, a, on a full basketball scholarship. I've, I've got a brother who's six foot seven, who is a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame and also coached Michael Jordan's two sons in high school. And then my middle brother is six foot six and uh, was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA. So I, athletics, as you can tell, is a big deal in our family. And uh, I was the first person actually to graduate from, from college. And so when I finished, I moved home to find a job. This was long before the internet. So I won't tell you how old I am. But, uh, you know, I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now and realize what a knucklehead I was that, you know, I didn't know anything about business, even though I had this degree. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job out of college. Uh, I worked for Wendy's International, the fast food chain and their marketing department at their corporate headquarters. But unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother we're both dying of different forms of cancer. In my professional career, as I said, I've been a marketing executive. I was also a hospital administrator. Uh, I was a police officer. And during that time, I was a, an undercover narcotics investigator. And I was also a SWAT team hostage negotiator. And after that, uh, I had my own school security consulting business and I coached high school basketball. And for the past several years, I've been a motivational speaker and an author. And then since 2012, I consider myself a cancer warrior. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for 27 years. And our only child, a daughter, is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the newly created United States Space Force. Quite a lot there. Uh, obviously, you took the normal path of college basketball, marketing business degree, and then a police officer, healthcare, all that, the typical path. Uh, and a lot yeah. of those things would be would be good enough for one person for a lifetime, probably. <laughs> but you weren't satisfied, it sounds like. Well, you know, my passion was always law enforcement. My, my grandfather was a Chicago policeman from 1924 to 1954. So he was a cop in Chicago during Prohibition, during the gangster days, you know, the Al Capone and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's something I really... I had a passion for, I really didn't know him. He died when I was like seven years old, but I remember my father telling the stories about how he was shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It, was, it wasn't a serious injury, he was shot in the ankle. But my, my father always remembers the stories my grandmother told about the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please grab your son, your, your husband's been shot. So my dad had my whole life planned for me. You know, it's like, you're gonna go to college, you're gonna major in business, you're gonna get out, you're gonna be in business but that's not what I wanted to do. That, that wasn't my passion. So I, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I pursued my goals. <laughs> Probably later than you would have liked to. <laughs> you know, I did. I became a rookie policeman when I was 37 years old. So um, that was, uh, 
that, that was not easy and uh, involved a whole lot of Tylenol. I'll tell you that much. I'm 36. So you're saying next year I could, I could take it up and be just fine. You could do it. No problem. That's right. Um, so out of all those things, college basketball, uh, the Wendy's marketing gig, uh, hospital administration, the multiple versions of police officer you are. I like the undercover part. That's pretty cool. What was the most difficult out of all those, would you say? I'm sure they're difficult for different reasons, but was there one that stuck out as being like more stressful? I mean, certainly being a policeman was a lot more stressful. You know, my wife had married me when I was a hospital administrator. So, you know, I was a suit and tie eight to five Monday through Friday kind of guy. And, you know, one day at dinner, I'm like, gee, hon, I'd kind of like to do this. What do you think? I'll miss, you know, holidays and birthdays and, you know, have to work nights and all that kind of stuff. And she was incredibly supportive. You know, it was something I wanted to do, something that was my passion. So, yeah, I, I mean, being a cop was the most difficult, but it was also the most rewarding and certainly the most fun. Yeah. How, what was the um, undercover stuff like? So you, meaning you were um, pretending to be some sort of a drug dealer, drug purchaser, things like that? Yeah. I, I mean, I we, we did all that. We worked with informants, you know, people who, you know, we had arrested on something else. You want to work off your charge, go in and buy dope at this place so we can hit it with a search warrant. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I remember, you know, one time I, I posed as a professor of metallurgy. I was, I was a policeman in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I, propose, I posed as a professor of metallurgy at the University of Cincinnati. These kids were coming down from Dayton and had a bunch of mushrooms they wanted to sell. Now, if they would have asked me a thing about metallurgy, I wouldn't have known anything at all. So, uh, but it, yeah, I mean, you know, met them in a park, gave them the money, they gave me the dope and then their world turned upside down when, you know, about nine cop cars showed up and they went to jail. So it, it was a lot of fun. It was it was very stressful. I mean, I, I was shot at during that time. I, you know, one of our, our people in our unit had a gun pointed in his face, you know, and he was trying to buy. So it's it's a very dangerous occupation, at least that part of it. Not that law enforcement isn't dangerous enough, but that part was was certainly dangerous. But we did the best we could. You know, we tried to be as safe as we could. And you know, fortunately, nobody got killed, but we certainly had some pretty scary times. Yeah, well, that sounds intense. Uh, and it seems like you're also a negotiator, but I'm curious about uh, at least the topic of failure. Throughout that storied career, do you have any uh, specific moments of failure that you think would be interesting to delve into a little bit? I, I mean, my failure, I, I, I've been fairly successful. You know, I... I you know, even to go to college and play Division One college basketball after three knee surgeries in high school, you know, was was a lot to overcome. But I'll, I'll tell you, the the thing that I learned even in high school was how important controlling your mind is, because if you don't control it, it's going to control you. And it, and, and you know, we, we know this, the, the, the brain, you know. We are wired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. And so when you start messing around with that, your brain kicks in and, you know, and even looking for a new job, you know, I want to look for a new job because I'm not happy here. Well, your brain kicks in. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, you're comfortable here. You're making good money. You understand the routines and hey, you go somewhere else. You might not get along with the people that come. That's what your brain will start putting, you know, into your thoughts. And you, if you want to do that, you have to control it. And it was really kind of a, a hard decision for me to, to know that my father did not want me to pursue my passion. But I knew that in my heart, I wanted to be a policeman. That's something I always wanted to do. But, you know, when the when your hero, you know, your dad is so diametrically opposed to it, it, it's, it definitely sets up a confrontation, you know, kind of almost in your soul, so to speak, to do you want to do this or or do you want to go along with your father's wishes? And I'm so glad I I, I did what I did. And, and I didn't go along with what my dad wanted me to do, because in my mind, that would have been a total failure. Yeah. And so I know controlling your mind is part of your four, four, truths. four truths. Yeah. Um, do you have any tips for listeners on how they can better control their mind or, or get uh, get ahead of that game? I, I think it's, it, you know, it, Part of it is knowing that it's going to happen. You know, part of it is knowing that, you know, your brain likes the status quo. Things are comfortable and stuff like that. But you're never, ever, ever going to grow 
just being stagnant, just sitting there and, you know, and saying, and, and, we, and we know these people, you know, them, I know, them. you know, I call them dead. They're people that get up every morning and go through the same routine. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. You know, I mean, it's just the same thing over and over and over. And those people never do a thing with their life. I have always believed that that we're destined to live uncommon and extraordinary lives. And that has nothing to do with what kind of job we have, how much money we make, what kind of car we drive, et cetera. We're not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. The problem is you have to control your mind because if you don't, your mind will set you up for absolute positive failure by putting all these doubts and fears into your thoughts. And you have to be able to control that and say, absolutely not. There's a there's a quote from a, I'm really going to date myself now, uh, a gold medal winning Olympic swimmer back in 1976 by the name of Shirley Babishoff. And she had one of the greatest quotes I ever, I ever heard. And this is what she said. Winners think about what they want to happen and losers think about what they don't want to happen. So winners can override that fear and that doubt and focus on the things they want to occur. Whereas losers just focus on the negative aspects of competition. So it's all what you focus on. If you wanna focus on reaching your goals, then you'll reach your goals. If you wanna focus on all the things that'll prevent you from, from reaching your goals, then you're never gonna reach those goals because those things are gonna hold you back. Yeah, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Especially with your own brain, because that's the controlling machine behind everything you do. Exactly. So exactly. He's not on board. Uh, you know, it's going to be harder to get there for sure. And right. any sign of you know things not going the right way, depending on if you've got a positive or a negative outlook on it, certainly will dictate your next moves and what you know how you take it, whether you're taking the stride or or not. I've not been as as sure of myself as you are. Meaning, I don't know. I just feel like there's something there that could still be worked through. It's finally allowed me at basically the same age almost that you were when you went into the police force. I don't want to do corporate finance and accounting. I hate it. It's the worst. Meaning I can't even control my own finances because I get home and I'm tapped out on dealing with money stuff. And I really honestly don't want to make uh, rich people richer. I'd rather just do something fun, even if it doesn't make me much money, which like, for example, this, I have no way to monetize this at the moment. It's mostly just me having fun <laughs> and right. money makes things stranger. So I usually try not to introduce money until I figure out what, what I'm doing with something. What was the biggest challenge besides convincing your wife, uh, which seemed like it wasn't really a big challenge uh, in terms of getting yourself to switch from, you know, doing that hospital administration stuff and then going into uh, the thing you really wanted secretly the whole time. The biggest hurdle was getting out of my own head and getting out of my own way. To, to be perfectly honest with you, you know, I, I mean, I was, my father had passed away. So there was really no obstacle other than, than his memory and, and the desire that he had for me to go into business. And, and I tried business. I, I you know, I, I gave it a shot. I was not happy. I was not fulfilled working at Wendy's, met a lot of great people, learned a lot of great stuff. Uh, same thing in hospital administration. It was probably more along the lines of helping people, but, uh, you know, I, I never did patient care and, and the patients were very happy that I didn't. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was a little more altruistic, a little more being able to, you know, uh, I, I did program development. And, and so it was more like, why can you know, why can't we do this? Or why can't we do that? Or can we put in this piece of equipment that will help other people and things like that? So that was better for me, but it still wasn't it, it wasn't my passion. You know, and I, and I always tell people that. You know, if, if there's something in your heart, if there's something, you know, in your soul that you feel you should do and it scares you to go ahead and do it, because at the end of your life and, and you know, we've all heard this before, but it's so true because I, I'm certainly someone who's coming to the end of my life. At the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things that you did. They're going to be the things that you didn't do. And by that time, it's too late to go back and do them. So whatever it is that you have a passion for, and we all have a passion for something, we all have a reason that we were put on this earth, find that passion and live it. And I can promise you when you do at the end of your life, you know, I, I've unfortunately seen a lot of people die as a policeman. And, and certainly I've met a lot of people who've had cancer that, 
that are that are no longer here. And the people that, in my mind, died what I would call peaceful deaths where people actually did something with their life. They actually got out there and, and they found their purpose and they lived it. Whereas the people who kind of went kicking and screaming, you know, wanted another, another day or another month or another year, those were people who never did anything with their lives. So in my mind, I'd rather go to my grave, you know, with, with a peaceful heart, knowing that I found my purpose in life and I lived it. And, and that yeah. for me was being a policeman. It's a good way to put it. And uh, I'm actually just rereading this book uh, called Bird by Bird by Anna okay. Lamont. It's a book on writing. It's how to write, uh, like write a book, for example, which I'm happy to get into in a minute with you, because I think you've written one, at least one book, right? How many? Correct. One. Okay. I'm sure that was a, a huge pain in the ass, <laughs> or at least uh, getting there is, is not always easy. But she did say something in that book talking about how if you look at dying people, they really show you how to live in terms of what is important in life? Because when you look at it from that perspective, not just putting yourself there, but seeing how the majority of people on their deathbed or whatever would look back at their lives and how they, you know, expose their regret, so to speak. I think uh, if you're happy with all the decisions you made and you're going after the things, even if you don't get there, uh, it's harder to regret trying than it is to regret talking to yourself out of stuff, you know? Exactly. So, you're absolutely right. Great point. Um so when you went from a police officer or ne- what would you call yourself? So police officer, negotiator, undercover, SWAT team hostage. Is there a, is there a, a term that was your overarching title or is it? I, I, was, I was, a, I started out as a police officer, got promoted to police specialist. And then when I left, I, w- I was a sergeant. So, okay, but I, yeah. I did those jobs within the, you know, police officer, police specialist, police sergeant role. And then did you like retire to go do basketball coaching or what? My my wife has always been the primary breadwinner and she lost her job in Cincinnati and wasn't able to find a new one. So she found one in Houston, Texas. So it was, you know, once again, here we go with an entirely, you know, what am I going to do now? And, and that and and I was kind of like you, I, I didn't want to. I liked being in law enforcement because, you know, your your car is kind of like your your office, you know, you're. Yeah. You know, you're you have to make decisions. There's nobody sitting there looking over your shoulder. And and sometimes those decisions are life and death decisions, you know, that are that are made, you know, just like that. So I liked that autonomy and I didn't want to go back into a corporate kind of environment. So I had the skills. So I started my own consulting business. And, um, you know, I, I actually was able to coach our daughter. You know, she went to the Air Force Academy to play basketball. She got my height. She's six foot two. So, um, so I, I thought, you know, I, I've got the skills, I've got the ability, and 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 coaching was uh, was a lot of fun on one hand. It was a royal pain in the neck, you know, with parents on the other hand. So, uh, were they the biggest hurdle or the biggest oh, challenge yeah. there? Is the parents? Well, my kid to play more, you know, what do you mean? We're, we're going to play in a tournament over Christmas, you know, we're going to the Bahamas, and so, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, you made a commitment to the team, you know, and yeah. that was, that was the biggest thing of trying to teach these kids. Not only was I, was I coaching basketball, but I was coaching girls and, and girls play sports for a whole different reason than, than boys do. It's more of a camaraderie kind of thing and stuff like that. So it, it was, you know, it was difficult for me. I, I didn't have any sisters growing up. You know, when, when our daughter was born, you know, I remember telling the, the, the OBGYN, it's like, no, 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 no. You got to keep it back in there till it's done because I don't know what to do with a girl, but I, you know, you, you love them. You, you do, you do what you have to do. You know, you, you're, you're their parent, you're not their friend. And I think that's, that, you know, if people ask me, what's the one piece of advice I could give? It's like, remember that you're the parent, you're not their friend. You know, you're going to have to make the tough decisions as a parent. No, you're not going to go do this. No, you're not going out with that person. You know, and and you're going to get the, you know, pounding feet and the slamming doors and I hate you. And, you know, my response always to that was, well, I love you. That's why I'm making these decisions. So um, good way to look at it. I mean, it's not easy to be the bad guy, even this, the normal, not even bad guy, but the normal, you can't do things because it's, it's the way it is, but the kid is learning, you know, they don't know where the line is. So even just setting up the uh, reasonable ex- expectations can be tough. And, and, on a, yeah. and I remember when our daughter decided, you know, I'm going to go play basketball at the Air Force Academy. There were other schools that were recruiting her. And I'm like, OK, you need to let those coaches know. 
And she's like, oh, I'll, I'll just send him a text. I'm like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, you won't. It's like, you know, you will call them on the phone and you will explain to them your decision. And, you know, she was very uncomfortable with that. And as so many kids are today, you know, and, and when I get asked a lot of times, especially by young people who want to be in law enforcement, you know, what's what do you think I can do, you know, to increase my chances of being successful? And I always tell them, put all that electronic stuff down, because, you know, when you're on the street, you're, you're not texting people. You have to be able to talk to the homeless guy the same way you talk to the guy who lives in the penthouse. And if yeah. you can do that, you'll be successful at it. If you can't do anything but text, you're not going to be successful as a cop. And and so, you know, I remember we role played with our daughter, you know, what would do expect with coaches and stuff. And there were, you know, division three coaches, which is the, the lowest level in the NCAA, who got mad at her, you know, and were like yelling at her. It's like, you're not going to come to my division three school where I don't give a scholarship. You're going to go play division one college basketball. I'm like, well, that's just the way coaches are. I, I mean, that that's somebody who tells me they don't have your best interest in mind. So, yeah, it just reaffirms the decision that you made. Exactly. During, during the call. Right. Exactly. And did you feel like uh, you said you had two brothers, right? And you're the oldest. I am. Feel any kind of uh, obligation to take care of the family, be the be the big man in the household, or were you relatively shielded from that? I, you know, I, I, I really was. I mean, certainly my, my dad died young. Uh, he died at 54. And, you know, my, but he left my mom fairly well off. Uh, but my mom had been a housewife her whole life. And here she was now, you know, all her kids are, are grown. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I was the first person in my family to, to graduate from college. Myself and all my brothers have college degrees and master's degrees now. So, you know, we were, even to this day, I mean, I still pay my mother's, um, property taxes and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, there's, I, I think, you know, I always talk about, especially when I had cancer, the the three F's, you know, faith, family, and friends, and how important, you know, my faith is to me, how important my my family is to me. I, I remember my dad, when when I was, when he was dying, my, my youngest brother was a senior in high school, and he had a basketball game, and I, I was working, I you know, and, and that, and I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to the game tonight, I'm, I'm going to go work out after 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 work and my dad was like oh, no 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 <laughs> you're you're going to come to the game and you're going to support your brother and i'm like i'm 25 years old you know i have a, a job and all that kind of stuff but i mean my dad was right you know it was it was all about supporting each other and caring for each other so i, I didn't feel an obligation to you know to kind of change places with my dad but i, I certainly felt an obligation to always make sure that, you know, my family, whether it's my immediate family or my extended family is, is taken care of. Uh, I have a question that's going to maybe come across the wrong way. So hopefully it does not, but do you think if your, dad, if your dad had lived longer, it would have taken you longer to get into the police force? I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it, you know, I did it at 37. I probably wouldn't have done it. So yeah. Cause it, it, you know, he was that much against it. Oh, terrible, terribly. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, at the time we were living in Columbus, Ohio, and I mean, he knew the police chief, he knew the sheriff, he knew, I, I mean, he knew everybody. So you tell him I not to hire you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nobody's going to hire me. You know, all my dad had to do is pick up the phone and call, you know. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it would have happened if, if he would have lived longer. Do you think now that you've done what you've done, do you think he would have? been okay with the path you chosen eventually or i mean or if you believe in an afterlife do you think he's looking down with with uh happiness for the choices you made despite being frustrated likely when you when you pivoted i, I do i i think you know in in the long run we all want what's best for you know the people that we love and care about and, and i think you know in hindsight you can look back and say that that was my passion that was my calling that was the reason i was put here and and you you couldn't impede that, you know, and, and maybe it would have come to a, you know, a, a knockdown, drag out, yell and scream and kind of thing. It's like, this is what I'm going to do. You know, you don't like it. I'm sorry. You know, hopefully you'll still love me and support me. If not, I still have to do what I have to do. Was it mostly a safety thing? You didn't want to get hurt? Yeah. I, I mean, let's face it. I mean, I, my grandmother used to tell stories, you know, of, of the beat cops in Chicago, you know, the, the, the transportation in Chicago is called the L for the elevated. It, it's elevated above the city. You know, it's not a subway that's underground. And 
when my grandfather was a beat cop, the, the, the peeping Toms used to stand underneath the stairs and look up the women's skirts as they would walk up to the train. And the way the beat cops would handle that is they would put steel tips on their shoes and they'd walk by the peeping Toms and kick them in the shin and break their legs. I, I mean, you, you can never get away with that stuff today. But, you know, that was the 1920s and the 1930s. Things were, you know, cops kind of were, you're, we're the boss. You, you don't talk back to us. You don't, you know, you don't ask us questions. You don't, you don't do anything. You, whatever we tell you, you just do it. And, and that's that's not the way it is today. And I don't think that's the way it should be. I mean, people have a right to know why we're doing what we're doing and, you know, why we pulled them over and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the 20s and 30s, as before, um, any sort of uh, video or audio, you know, surveillance stuff, but also even just any, I mean, DNA probably wasn't even around that. I'm not no. sure when they came up with any of that stuff, but uh, it would be hard to prove that a cop did something wrong. It would be mostly your word against theirs at that point. And back then it was, you know, the, the police rule. They, I mean, they could say whatever they wanted and, and people were going to believe them. And, you know, I think that led to a little bit of a false bravado, you know, that yeah. we're, we're always right. And so, yeah, yeah you, you, you probably are. And, and, you know, I mean, when you're running, you know, we do it in cars now, but they walked the beat, you know, they walked an area and things like yeah. that. And they didn't have a radio and they had a, you know, I, I remember a story she told me about, you know, somebody got in the middle of an armed robbery, pulled their gun, got the two robbers, had to walk them two blocks to a call box, you know, to call in and say, hey, meet me at so-and-so, you know, with the paddy wagon so we can take these guys to jail. I mean, yeah, it, it was a whole lot less safe back then than it is now. And when did they even invent bulletproof vests? You know when that was? Mm. I'm imagining. I'm going to say maybe in the 80s. That'd be huge, or at least a big advancement for sure. Um, I'm curious, what's your opinion on body cameras and all that whole thing? I, I have no problem with body cameras. I mean, we had, we did not have body cameras when I was a policeman. We had in-car cameras. So, you know, if you made a traffic stop or something like that, and, and we had microphones on our belt, so you could, you could hear what was going on. You may not be able to see it if it was. When you're watching cops and they have this, the dash cam view. Yeah, the police officer, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's exactly you know the way it was, and, and I mean, if you're not doing anything wrong, what what do you care whether you're recorded or not? So, you know, I, I mean, the problem is, is it's always easier to after an incident, you know, when you got all the facts to say, oh, you should have, you should have. Well, when I have to make a split second decision, yeah, I, I don't have those facts, and you know, it's easy for you to say I should have done something else. You know, you weren't yeah. there at two o'clock in the morning with three hours of sleep and, you know, it's cold yeah. out and it's raining and, you know. There's a lot of factors. I, I have no idea what it's like to be a cop, but I can imagine it's uh, not only stressful, but a certain percentage of probably more than half might be more uh, uneasy or what when they see a cop instead of pleased to see them around, which is, I mean, when I used to be an auditor, public accountant, no one wanted me around. I was like, okay, well. I don't want to be here either. So what is happening? What are we doing here? And that's what I tell people. I'm like, if you look at law enforcement, if you want to, you know, if you're seriously looking to go into that job, I always tell people three things. Number one, you're going to make less money than a plumber. Number two, just like you said, nobody's going to want you around. It's never a good thing because we're pulling you over to give you a ticket or we're knocking on your door to tell you that you need to call this number because, you know, grandmother died or something like that. And number three, everybody lies to you because everybody wants to put their best foot forward. So you take the other guy to jail. So if you think about that, if you went to work every day, you made less money than a plumber, nobody wanted you there and everybody lied to you. How long would you do that job? You know, you yeah. have to have a real passion, a real calling to really want to do that, given that you, you get very little support whatsoever from the community anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's tough too, because where it's hard to know where that line is. They don't, walk a beat as much anymore they're not seeing people getting interact like normal interactions with folks especially now with covid and all that stuff there's a lot less uh interpersonal relations do you think there's anything we can do to make the public police uh, relationship any better yeah i i think i think there needs to be an understanding i i mean i i've always felt like you know you train us for six or eight months in an academy you train us to be warriors and then you put us out on the street and, and make us social workers. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that's true. And, and I think it's important for us as policemen 
to talk to people and, and to tell them why. I, I mean, I, re I remember an incident one time we were, there'd been an armed robbery on our, our beat and we were looking for a Chevy Suburban and a couple other guys found it. They pulled it over. It was not the car we were looking for. There, there were, it was not the color, it was not the people that were in it. Uh -huh. And, but the, the driver just kept saying, why'd you stop me? Why'd you stop me? Why'd you stop me? And these cops wouldn't tell them. And finally, my partner and I went up. It's like, look, here's the deal. You know, we had this robbery. This vehicle matches the description. You are not the people. Thank you for cooperation. And once you tell people, oh, okay, that makes sense. I, I understand why you yeah. did that. And, and the other thing I always tell people that if you want to understand law enforcement a little bit, but you don't want to be a cop, most police departments have a citizen's police academy. It's like one night a week for, you know, six or eight weeks. And, and you go and, you know, you learn about laws. You you know, the, a lot of departments will let you, you know, if you want to shoot, you know, here, here are the weapons we carry. Here, here's what, you know, whether it's a paintball gun or whether it's a beanbag shotgun or whatever it is. Here are the things, you know, and then they'll put you in different scenarios. And it's like, you know, I mean, they'll put you in scenario, you know, somebody comes at you with a knife, somebody comes at you with a knife, somebody comes at you with a knife, you pull your gun, you shoot them. Okay, no problem. Somebody comes at you with a cell phone. Oh, you pulled your gun, you shot him. Ooh, that was a cell phone. But you thought it was a knife. You know, it's yeah. dark out and things like that. You know, so there, there are a lot of different scenarios that they can put you through that you kind of come away with a greater appreciation for. This isn't as cut and dry as it is, you know, the next morning. And, and, and I've been on, when I was on undercover, I mean, there were times when I would come home and I would actually be on the scene that the news was reporting about. And, and I'd come home and, I, and I'd sit there with my wife and I'm like, oh, I was there. That didn't happen that way, you know? And so they're, yeah. they're reporting stuff that, that, that just, that just didn't happen. So. Yeah. It's like a game of telephone where who knows the players, <laughs> but yeah. you know, People yeah. see different things. And I we know, I'm sure you know from the the gorilla video and other things where eyewitness testimony can be not so reliable with the one with the dancing gorilla coming through. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Yeah, I have. Uh, I have. Uh, I mean, if we've had, you know, they do that in the academy. Somebody will come in, you know, you'll be sitting there, you know, they'll be doing a class. Class is boring. You're, you know, you're half asleep and somebody will run through, scream something, pop off around and run out. Tell me what that person looked like. You know, yeah. and, and, and it's amazing that and, and we're trained to do this, you yeah. know, and we make mistakes. So, yeah. And you can be sure of yourself, too, and be wrong, <laughs> but not be lying, you know? Yeah, Which, exactly. You're, you're not trying to deceive anybody. This is just what I remember. And, you know, our brains are great at, you know, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. Oh, now there's uh, I'm going to fill that in here just for you. And then, yeah. you know, we'll move on. And so your brain fills stuff in that you may not have seen. I think more important is people going going forward and at least once they figure out that they weren't correct, admitting they were wrong. And uh, I think not enough people admit that they're incorrect or wrong or did something um, bad and they'd rather just move on to the next thing. And I think it's important to at least, even if it's just yourself, to uh, identify some of the weaknesses that might have made a situation more difficult. Um, right. So what's the uh, what's the book that you wrote and what's the motivational speaker realm that you exist in, would you say? So the, the book is called Sustainable Excellence, the 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And, and the book was kind of born out of two conversations. One was a former basketball player that I had coached who moved to Colorado and my wife and I had had dinner with her. And. And I remember saying to her, you know, I'm, I'm excited for you because I get to watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet. And after a few minutes, she was like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I don't know what your purpose is. That's what your life should be about. It should be about finding that purpose. And then once you find it, it should be living it. So that was one story. And then another story where an individual on LinkedIn connected with me and he wanted to know, he was in college. He said, you know, what do you think of the things that I need to know to not only be successful in, in my job or in business, but in life. And I didn't want to give them the classic, you know, work hard, get up early, help you. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. But I, I kind of wanted to go deeper. And so I spent some time and I wrote down some notes and that. And finally, I had these sort of 10 principles and I sent them to them. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, I've got a life story that, you know, fits under this, or I've got a 
know somebody who's got a life story that fit under that. And, and literally uh, last April, I had my leg amputated because of the cancer. And I also have tumors in my lungs. And in June, I started chemotherapy. So between April and June, I, I wrote this book. And, and it was just taking these 10 principles that I'd given to the, to the young man in college and putting stories underneath them. And all of a sudden I had a book and I thought I had a book. So I, I gave it to a couple of friends of ours. He, one of them was a former Navy SEAL. She was a, a prosecutor. And I'm like, read this and tell me, is this baloney or is this something that should really, yeah. you know, should I try to get it published? And independently, they were like, no, you, you should you should definitely get this published. So that's kind of how the book came about. And um, just kind of, you know, learning about the publishing business. That's a whole nother realm yeah. of things that I, that I didn't know anything about. Um, I got in touch with a, a guy who was a former cop. And funny story, he he had been asked by a friend is to go out to California and put on a presentation for writers who wanted to understand police tactics so they can incorporate them into their yeah. books and, and sound like they know what they're talking about. And he goes out there and he ends up meeting his wife. And she's she's written like 34 best-selling books and stuff like that. So they they started this small not-for-profit publishing company. And I got hooked up with him. And, and that's kind of how the book got published. That's awesome. So what's your best advice for people who are trying to write a book? Would be get your leg amputated so you have a lot of time to sit around and <laughs> think about things? Yeah. Yeah. You got plenty of time. Not going anywhere real quickly, at least, you know. So, um, Is that when you did most of your work? Yeah. I really did. I, I mean, you know, I, I had all this time I had to heal. And so, you know, I could sit around and eat bonbons and watch television or I could do something with my life. So I just, I decided to write the book and, and literally I had two rules. Uh, one was I would write a minimum of a page every day. And the second rule was I will not edit anything until I have the first draft done. And I'll be honest with you. There were days that I sat down and I wrote garbage. It was terrible. You know, I, I write it and I'm like, this is never going to see the light of day. But then the next day I might write something that was good. And, you know, so eventually if you, if you have that stick to you know, that you're, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a page every day. I mean, you do that in, in a month, you've got 30 pages. You know, I, I mean, if you think about that, you know, a page is really not that hard. Yeah. It's double spaced. So you know, writing a page is not that hard and you just got to stay at it because people, you give up. And, and, and that's, that's the hard part. You know, the number of people have said, Oh, you know, yeah, I'm going to write a book. Like, okay. When you do it, give me a holler, you know, because yeah. it's so easy to quit. It's so easy to, uh, you know, I don't feel like it today. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, well, nobody cares. Yeah. Is nobody it, cares. I don't care. Out. I'm tired today. I'm hung over, whatever. I'm not going to do it today. Well, then you don't do it today. Well, then you don't do it tomorrow. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're at a point where, well, yeah, I was going to write a book, but shoulda, woulda, and coulda, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because, so I'm going to mention that book one more time, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. So she has two main rules, which are super similar to what you said, which is uh, to uh, have short assignments, which would be like write 300 words a day, I think is what she said. And uh, shitty first drafts was the other one. So meaning exactly what you're saying. Don't don't think too hard about it. Get your thoughts out on the page. And, you know, uh, I've always said as as humans, we're we're good at criticizing things. We're not great at creating things. So the more you can just create anything, you can criticize it into something better. Right. But if you have something, it's hard to know how you should shape it and mold it and, and change it. Uh, so I think that's great advice. And from when you what was the time period from when you started to when you ended it, like when the book got published? How long was the span of time that, that so it, it got published in october of last year so i started it in april so oh, that's uh, quick april yeah it, it was relatively it was relatively quick i i mean it's not a it's not a long book it's about 120 pages so you know i mean i i knew i wasn't going to write war and peace or anything like that you know so it was yeah. just you know I, I wrote until okay it's it's done now and we'll see what happens with it so and now you think you're done with writing or you're going to uh, pursue that a little bit more? You know, I, I, I'm sort of compiling a, a sort of sustainable excellence too. I think sustainable excellence, the first one was more 
focused on success, you know, what makes us successful as, yep. as people. And I think I really want to concentrate this next one on another S word significance. You know, success is what we do. We are, you know, you're a su successful podcaster, right? You know, maybe I'm a successful author. Significance is what we do for other people. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of focusing this second one more on what it takes to be significant. Now, not that I think you can't be both. I think yeah. you can be successful and significant, but I, I think I want to spend more time looking at what would make people significant. And, you know, I already did something on what I think would make people yeah. successful. Would it be sustainable significance then? Is that what you're thinking? I don't know. I might just be su sustainable excellence, you know, 10 principles to leading your significant life. I, I, I don't know. I have to play with the title. I, I mean, it's, I mean, that's a nice thing about having a publishing company, you know, they have editors and, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, and that's, I guess maybe a third thing is if you get to a point where you have a book and you turn it over to a publishing company, it's kind of like your baby and, yeah. and editors will come back to you and say, you know what, I think you should take this out or I think you should clean this up or this doesn't fit or whatever, you know, and you, you kind of, I found myself sometimes kind of getting indignant. It's like, well, yeah. you know what? No, this is my book. What, what do you, but they're the professionals, you know, they're the people who know what to do. And there were some times where I'm like, absolutely not, but I'm going to sleep on it. And, and almost every single time it was like, I will get up in the morning and reread it again and be like, yeah, they're right. This needs to come out. Yeah. This needs to be tightened up or something like that. So if, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to have specialists, use them. You know, it's kind of like going to the doctor and saying, you know, yeah, you broke your arm. Well, no, I didn't. I'll, I'll take care of it. You know, no, that's that's their specialty. Let let them do what doesn't look broken. <laughs> yeah, it's not broken. You know, it, it's just a sprain. You know, it's like, you know, one last thing before we get into some of the typical questions. I want to ask you about the get out of feel free card and, and what you're doing in the future. But is there any other thoughts on failure and your storied past that you want to maybe make sure you say before we get into sort of the forward looking stuff? Yeah, I'll, you know, the Mike Tyson had a, had a great quote. He said, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, you know, during my cancer journey, I, I had, I was on a drug called interferon for five years. And it was basically like having the flu every week for five years, if you can imagine that. And then once the drug stopped, the cancer came back. And I was put on a, just to see if it would work, it didn't work. I was put on a, a biologic therapy. And this therapy, I had four, four treatments of it, and I was exhausted. And it also gave me a disease called pseudogout when my right knee swelled up and it had all kinds of crystals and stuff like that. And it was, I, I, was, it was, in, I was in agony with it. And then one, one, probably a couple of weeks later, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking I was having a heart attack. And my wife sends me, you know, we, we go to the ER and I'm laying there and I am literally depleted mentally, physically, emotionally. And I remember looking at my wife, literally with tears coming down my cheeks saying, just let me go. Just let me die. And for some reason at that moment, I remembered reading an article that was written about a professional um, sports guy who owned a professional sports team who paid a Navy SEAL to come and live with his family for a month and teach them to do more with their bodies than their mind ever thought they can do. And one of the things that he taught them was the 40% rule. And this rule basically says that if, you, if you're at the end, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, like me, like probably the end of my life, but, you know, I'm going to go run five miles today. Well, you get to three miles and you know what, you're hurting and you got a cramp in your side. And you're like, no, I'm done. What, what the 40% rule said, if you're at the end, if you don't think you can do any more, you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have 60% left in your tank. And I remember kind of going inside myself with all, all these doctors and nurses and all this stuff running around. I, I didn't have a heart attack. I actually had a blood clot in my lung and fluid around the sack of my heart, but they're trying to mitigate all my circumstances. And I just kind of went inside myself and I'm like, you know what? You have so much more left to give. Do not quit. Do not give up. So that was a, you know, a physical story for me, but I think you can apply yeah. that to whatever you're doing with your life, whether you're, you know, trying to start your own business or find another job or something like that. You don't think you can do it. You still have 60% left in your tank. That's good. That means you give up too early. It's what it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good way of looking at it. I like that. I've never heard of that. Um, do you remember what the book was called or the article? The, the, 
the owner is um, Itzler, who's who's the owner of the Atlanta Hawks in the NBA, and the Navy SEAL is David Goggins. Yeah, I've been told to read that. I have not yet read it. I have like a resistance to anything manly uh, sometimes, so I'm sure I'll get there though at some point. I just got a long list yeah. of books. I I've heard it enough that I'm probably going to put it more towards the top. I just should do more stuff like that. I, I'm trying to now do a lot of the things that I've avoided all my life, like learning about cars and other things that seemed either like a waste of time or just too much. Uh, I could just pay someone to do it kind of thing, but like, yeah. it's, it's interesting stuff, you know, learning all those things, trying to fill in the gaps of uh, what I, what I missed out on. Sure. Um, so being a guest on the show, you get a get out of fail free card, which um, if, if you're not familiar with it, it is a, uh, similar to the monopoly card where you get to use it to pursue something that is failure ridden and you might've avoided in the past, but something that appeals to you, I imagine it probably wouldn't be some of the things you've already done, but maybe something more on the creative side or somewhere else. I'm not sure what, uh, I mean, I don't want to put you in any kind of a box, so feel free to use it however you'd like, but is there something you'd, uh, some kind of career or hobby or passion you'd pursue if it wasn't for the amount of failure involved? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure if I thought about it, I could think of something, but I, I mean, I really have as, you know, when I describe my, my sort of my journey through all my jobs, I, I was never afraid to try something new. So acting, you know, there, dancing, singing, uh, anything you know, in the creative arts world, you don't want to do it. Meaning you might my fail. My brother always tells it. me I have a face for radio. So I, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I I think if I had to do something, it would probably be something in education, something more towards, you know, helping kids realize, you know, all this, this stuff around them, all these, you know, cyberbullying and, you know what, your ears are too big or your feet are too big. Because, I mean, I had that growing up and stuff like, who cares what people think? Who cares what other people think of you? You know, I mean... And and I know that's easy for me to say when you're a young kid who wants to fit in and be impressionable and stuff like that. You know, you 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 want people to accept you. When people don't, you know, that causes all kinds of stress and anxiety yeah. and depression. And, and and I get it. But I just want I, I you know I would probably do something in education. I would probably do it more around self esteem and yeah. you know courage and and integrity and and things like that. That sounds like a good way to do it because. It's not healthy to let everyone else decide your own self-worth, regardless of what form that takes. It can be certainly difficult to find it on your own, but uh, but definitely you're the one who has to live your life. So why would you let other people dictate how you feel about yourself? Again, a lot of that's easier said than done. And right. uh, I know, you know, we've all, I'm sure we all struggle with it at times. Um, I wanted to know what is your next big failure? What's the thing you're going to do next that you haven't done yet that you're uh that you're toying around with writing this book. I, I mean, it, this, this is, I, I'm sort of in the compiling stage now. And, and this is just, it just seems much harder than writing the first one. And you would think it would be just the opposite, you know? You, yeah. There's no expectations before now, no. now that you've done a book, maybe if the people liked it, you know, more of the same thing, more of dirt, right. it's hard to know what, what people actually want from you. And when they're not expecting anything, it might be easier to fulfill that. Well, it, you know, it's funny when I, when I first wrote the book and it came out, I was kind of, you know, I got to sell the book. I got to, I got to get out there. I got to promote the book and stuff like that. And I had a, I've connected with sort of a best selling author over in the UK who, who writes business books and he, he has a whole platform and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of pulled me aside on the, on the internet. And he said, no, he said, you're, you're, you're missing the point here. He said, your job is not to, to sell books. Your job is to help people. If you help people, the books will sell themselves. And, and he was so right about that. I didn't write the book to make money or, you know, to get famous or even to promote my, my speaking business. I wrote it to try to help people. And his focus really kind of, it was kind of like being slapped in the face. It was like, no, you're, you're focusing on the wrong stuff. Focus on why you wrote the book and don't worry about it selling. It'll sell itself if you, if you focus on that. And, and, and he was right. Yeah, I mean, the more people you help, the more likely they are to share it in a passionate way. No one wants to believe the author that they should read their book, or at least if you're operating from a source of love and compassion, you can only help uh, make that a reality. If you're looking more selfish and trying to think, how can I sell more books? Then you might 
go down paths that are less uh, externally fulfilling or at least less. Yeah, less altruistic and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, for sure. Well, so we're coming up on the end here. Is there anywhere specifically you'd point people to um, find you these days? Where's the best place for uh, if anyone's interested in finding out what you're doing or connecting? What would be the best? Sure. So I, I have a blog called Motivational Check. So if you go to motivationalcheck.com, uh, I post a, a daily thought for the day. I, I post a Monday morning motivational message. It might be a story. It might be a video. But everything I do is short. You know, I mean, even the videos, five, five, six minutes, they're not going to be real long. I know people don't have a lot of time, but motivationalcheck.com, you can leave me a message there. You can get access to, to the book there uh, through Am- but you can get access to the book anywhere. Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks, pretty much anywhere you can get a book online, you can find sustainable excellence. So yeah, awesome. motivationalcheck.com. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and I hope everything goes well with the uh, the new book and the existing book and everything else you plan on doing. Any of the mo- I know motivational speaking at this time probably is a little bit tough, but hopefully we're coming out of that realm and maybe even you're figuring out how to do it remotely. Who knows? Uh, who knows how that's going? But uh, actually but podcasts are kind of the way these days. You know? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. It's basically uh, you don't know who you're talking to, but you're talking to a bunch of people that hopefully will will benefit from what you have to say. Um, exactly. Thank you for coming on the show, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time, and uh, I hope everything goes well. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over 5 hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training.